often it can be a race against time. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. A one-year-old girl is rushed to the ER in cardiac arrest. According to the attending physician, on arrival, she wasn't breathing and had no pulse. The team quickly supported her breathing and her pulse rapidly returned. They noted pinpoint pupils and I recommended they give naloxone. She began to breathe on her own and soon began to move and then cry. Over a few hours, her breathing again slowed, requiring additional doses. Ultimately, and thankfully, she made a full recovery. Those are the words of Dr. Howard Greller, an ER physician and director of medical toxicology at SBH. Welcome, Dr. Greller. Thank you. This was part of your recent testimony before the New York State Joint Senate Task Force on Opiates Addiction and Prevention in discussing the Project Relay program, which was just a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about Project Relay? So Project Relay is a uh, New York State Department of Health sponsored program where someone who presents with an opioid overdose, non-fatal opioid overdose, uh, we are able to contact a peer advocate, someone who has experience with substance use disorders. They come to the emergency department within an hour. They counsel the patient. They provide them with naloxone kits, teaching and training. And then they have uh, whatever services that are needed and are available to them and follow them for upwards of 90 days. And this program has been here for what, a couple of years now? It, we are about uh, a little over a year and a half now. How has it worked? It's been really very successful um, and it's been a, a great benefit to our patients. We've engaged at the last uh, count uh, over 330 patients and distributed almost 600 naloxone kits just through that program alone. So we're saving lives. Absolutely. Every day. Okay. And we're, what, one of, what, a handful of programs in the, in the so, city? Yeah, we were, we were one of the first five pilot sites for the program. Uh, we started uh, back in January of 2018, and they've expanded the program now to 10 additional hospitals, so they're a total of 15. Now, I, I know the opiate overdose situation is really a grave one particularly in the Bronx, right? Yes. We, we unfortunately have the distinction of being the county uh, that has the highest rate and highest number of opioid overdose deaths in, in the state. What are some of the challenges here in the Bronx? So uh, like anywhere else, it's access to care, it's education, and it's being uh, having resources available to, to help patients with the challenges of, of substance use disorders. Have the numbers in the Bronx gone down? Overall, the numbers have not really gone down. Last year was the first year where there was a general, um, the, the overall numbers for the state were a little bit less than they had been the year before, so a slight decrease, but the number of deaths and the rate of deaths in the Bronx continued to rise. I, I know the, the borough that was leading until recently was Staten Island. They have a very different demographic there. Yeah. Why are they having a problem with opioids as well? So uh, I can't speak to what's going on in Staten Island specifically as to why they're having the issue. This is not an issue which is unique to the Bronx, to New York, to the United States. It's This is a really a global phenomenon. The United States is being unfortunately 
the greatest challenged by it. But Staten Island, um, their makeup of, of opioid problem had a significant number of prescription opioids. So they were drugs that were prescribed by doctors or prescribed by doctors appropriately or inappropriately. And the makeup of the kind of drug that was being used was primarily a pill. Um, that has changed as well. They That has switched globally and, and and regionally to more illicit drugs like heroin. So and, and that's changed. especially here in the Bronx, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean the Bronx is the Bronx is very very challenged by by heroin and in the last few years, probably within the last 5 or plus years, uh, most of the heroin supply has been contaminated with fentanyl, which is a, a much more potent version of of these kinds of drugs. Now, naloxone also um, deals with fentanyl, right? Yeah, naloxone will will help to reverse the effects of any drug in the opioid class. So that's heroin, oxycodone, fentanyl, uh, Demerol, meperidine, knowing them either by the trade name, their chemical name, um, any of these drugs that are ultimately derived from from the opium poppy or that that backbone. Now let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Um, and I know you're a medical toxicologist. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? So what it means is I'm a, I'm a physician who specializes in medical toxicology. And medical toxicology is the uh, branch of medicine that deals with poisonings, drug interactions, envenomations, uh, environmental toxins, radiation poisoning, chemicals uh, from either the environment or from an industry. Uh, so it really is is the gamut. It's kind of I like to think about it as normal physiology that sort of goes bad and, <laughs> and through the interaction with some form of a chemical, and that chemical can come from really any source. So, and I guess very often patient comes into the ER, mm -hmm. and person patient may be unconscious or semi conscious, sure. or perhaps not willing to say what they ingested. Yeah, and so it's basically a detective situation where you have yeah. to decide, how, how do you determine what they took if they're not going to tell you, if they can't tell you? Right. Uh, so I think one of the most important things is fundamentally it comes down to not necessarily identifying the specific thing, but taking care of the patient that's there. Uh, so the, the sort of the short phrase is treat the patient, not the poison. And one of the reasons why I like it so much is because it allows sort of a back to basics approach, sort of looking at the patient and trying to understand exactly what's going on with their physiology at that moment, with the understanding that that can always change and trying to do the least amount of harm while trying to figure out the, the most good that can be done. Um, and it's not always someone ingesting something. So, you know, one of the other common things that we encounter is a lot of times there are more than one physician prescribing medications for a patient. And so there can be interactions between right. medications. There can be interactions with the medications that people are prescribed and medications that people take over the counter or herbal medications, some traditional remedies, depending on the cultural background of the patient. So it can be an interaction with almost anything that can lead to a not predictable or a not anticipated uh, 
interaction and a problem. And I guess in many cases also, the additional burden is, is you're racing against the clock. You got to find answers. You got to find them quickly, right? I mean, that's emergency medicine, right? right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, w- there is there is always the time pressure, but the time also is often a- an ally because things uh, evolve, and and that evolution is gives a lot of information as well. So we're allowed, you know, we're able to see the change, and a change can often give us a lot of information as to potentially what is going on. You shared a story with me a couple of years ago regarding a family. Uh, I think it was an estranged father right. who was sitting down with his two children. Yep. Son and daughter, yeah. Why, why don't we talk about that? Yeah, uh, so this was, this was back when I was uh, a toxicology fellow uh, during, my, during my training in toxicology. And it was a family. The father was in the middle of a contentious divorce um, and basically came home, brought dinner for himself his son and his daughter um and it consisted of pizza and soda and they they sat they had dinner and while they were having dinner the father got up from the table began to vomit and then collapsed the son also started to become sick and collapsed and the daughter who had um well, ultimately, it was discovered didn't drink as much of the soda, um, was able to call 911. EMS got there. The father essentially was deceased. The son was able to be um, brought to the hospital and the daughter was brought to the hospital as well. And ultimately, what had happened was the father had put cyanide in the soda and uh, because he was trying to basically end his life and, and his children as well. So it was a very tragic case. Fortunately, the, the son and the daughter were able to be uh, treated and, and recovered. I've always been a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, how, how do you, <laughs> um, you have two, you have patients who come in, uh, you don't have a backstory. I mean, now you can yeah. tell the backstory, but at the time, I assume you've got, a, you're starting from scratch pretty much. You do start from scratch, but it's the, the detective work, like Sherlock Holmes, it's a lot of, of, sort of picking up on things that may not mean something to other people. So the fact that you may have more than one patient from the same family presenting with significant illness and with a fatality before they even get to the hospital, that really raises suspicion and points towards, you know, there are, there's a short list, fortunately, of things that can very rapidly lead to someone's death from an ingestion. So, you know, it's, it's sort of taking those clues and trying to build a picture and building, building a story as, you know, to see what fits. Um, so. Because I would, I would think in many times you don't have the luxury of doing lab tests. You got to make decisions pretty quickly, right? For for some things, cyanide is an example where you know there's kind of a shoot first, ask questions later approach. Um, certain things where, and again, cyanide in that kind of an exposure is fortunately very uncommon. The much more common scenario would be someone pulled out of a house fire, where combusted plastics um, can release a lot of cyanide, and so someone that comes out of a fire who is unconscious or has either a low or no blood pressure, um, we would sort of empirically go ahead and and just treat based on the the scenario. And that even happens now pre-hospital by EMS where they give an antidote called hydroxycobalamin or cyanokit, which is specifically 
for that kind of a scenario. It's the same drug that we would use if they got to the hospital alive, right. uh, but it's it is you know the time frame really depends on the severity, and so depending on how sick the patient is determines how much time we have to get information versus just doing something in order to extend their life long enough to figure out what's going on. I guess not in every case there is a specific antidote to the problem, right? Nope. It's not like a, a, a recipe where A equals B. Sometimes you've got to find the, the best solution at that right. time, right? Right, and, and that's absolutely true. There, There's not an antidote for everything. Um, there are only sort of a handful of antidotes for very specific things, and it's also not always just one poison or toxin that someone's exposed to that you have to deal with. And sometimes it's a uh, competing interests, depending on what you think is going to be the most harmful or the most rapidly concerning. And you have to address that and, and balance that against uh, what other things you think are going on. So it's, it is always a, a bit of a cognitive puzzle, which is what makes it fun and exciting and and intellectually challenging, just uh, one of the reasons why I, you know I love doing it so much. You mentioned about venom. Yeah. I've got the term, and what's the term for uh, someone who's been injected with snake venom? Envenomated. Yeah, envenomated. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever run across something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, fortunately, in the Bronx, <laughs> snake bite is not that common. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we do. We do benefit from having uh, the proximity to the Bronx Zoo, and uh, they, the kinds of snake bites that uh, I have seen in New York are, um, the, I think the current term that we're using are from people who are snake enthusiasts. We don't call them collectors anymore, but snake enthusiasts who have rare, exotic, non-native snakes, and so oftentimes treating or figuring out what treatment is available could be a challenge as well because these are snakes that come from you know around the world um there was another uh, one snake bite that i took care of um, many years ago was a gaboon pit viper so it was a, a snake from africa that you know is just sort of we didn't have anything to and we just had to sort of manage the patient based on the progression of their symptoms but how would you know i mean it's not like the the snake viper is sitting there well no I mean, no so in that in that case so that's not that's not so much a mystery because the patient states i got bit by my snake what kind of snake do you have i have this snake right. showing up you know because these are also these are people who are very uh, proud of you know their their pets and their collections and so um that's not that's not often the the challenge the identity it, the challenge is now dealing with something that is not common in the united states um and so again there's a the venom center at the bronx zoo they they handle many varieties of snakes uh, many of which are venomous and many of which are from different parts of the world. And because of that, they also stock uh, a number of what, if available, uh, a type of antivenin for, for that kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's, if it's needed, uh, it's there. I see. And, yeah. I, and I guess also um, part of your line of work or when people, whether you ingest pills or something, mm -hmm. um, 
suicide attempts, overdoses, yeah. whatever. And I guess the first thing you look at are the symptoms, right? Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. And and then I guess sometimes do you need a computer next to you so you can check the data as to what could cause these symptoms, or is it something that over the course of experience you just really pretty much know what? Yeah, I mean, what, I, I most the most common things are stuff that I've seen over and over and over and over again. But a, a perfect example of that is Tylenol, so or acetaminophen, you know, a a very 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 common drug which is present not only in just the brand name, but it's also in a combination with multiple different things, headaches and for cough and cold preparations, and is a very, very well-studied drug. So something that people have been looking at, not only the drug, but also the, the adverse things that can happen by taking too much for years and years and years. But every single patient that comes in is slightly different. And even though we have a very standardized approach for certain kinds of exposures every time is a is a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a you know it's sort of uh, figuring out what to do based on the experience and again the specific patient that's that's there in front of you so i'm sure you have a lot of war stories huh? <laughs> plenty <laughs> plenty plenty okay well thank you dr greller for a My few pleasure. minutes today um for more information on Project Relay, medical toxicology, or other services available at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us. Until next time. 